introduction to the topic. I uh, had not planned on speaking, and I was uh, planning on inviting a few speakers who have discussed this issue uh, to some extent. It's an under-researched uh, topic, and I was asked to uh, find people who have done some work on this or could contribute to a discussion of this topic in a kind of serious way. Uh, and so I thought of myself as being a kind of discussant or facilitator, but for one reason or, or another, I, was, I found myself, in fact, uh, giving a presentation. So I'm going to give a kind of overview of uh, what I think, uh, or some uh, aspects of this topic that I think are worth uh, commenting on. So I want to start with a kind of proposed taxonomy, a proposed um, classification of certain ways in which uh, the question of Palestine interacts with language, uh, a number of ways in which uh, language shapes and frames uh, discourse about Palestine. And so I've come up with a few labels, uh, a few terms, uh, and these are my terms, uh, and maybe people uh, might have better terms for it, or maybe uh, there are uh, already out there uh, certain other ways of talking about these issues. But I think they're convenient uh, labels or tags uh, to discuss various aspects of the way in which uh, discourse about Palestine uh, gets uh, uh, gets transmitted and, and uh, shapes the way we, we view uh, the question of Palestine. Now, uh, when I talk about discourse, of course, it's uh, very easy to say that the main target here is media discourse. But I think it's a bit too uh, facile sometimes to engage in a kind of uh, process of media uh, or a practice of media bashing uh, because a lot of this discourse actually originates from official pronouncements, from uh, spokespersons, from official discourse, from political um, figures. And so the media sometimes picks it up unquestioningly. Uh, and of course, uh, the media can be faulted for that, but I'm not sure that it's uh, all about the media. Uh, and of course, I think there's also uh, academic discourse that's partly to blame, and of course, uh, popular culture, and so on. So here are the, the phenomena that I wanted to discuss. The first is uh, what you might call uh, linguistic manipulation or misapplication. Uh, terms that get systematically uh, used in an uh, inconsistent way uh, that distort and mislead and misdescribe uh, the question of Palestine, uh, that, that gets uh, applied uh, selectively to certain things and not uh, to other things without uh, sufficient uh, justification. Uh, and then there's this phenomenon that I'm going to call linguistic accommodation, uh, which is this process whereby supposedly compromised terms, supposedly neutral terms are introduced uh, in order not to polarize the debate or in order uh, to uh, come up with a kind of compromise that doesn't buy into either side's uh, account uh, and so on. I think it's very misleading. Uh, a third uh, phenomenon that I want to discuss is what I call linguistic appropriation. Uh, terms that, that have been so uh, regularly applied, so persistently and repetitively applied, for instance, to Israel, that they get effectively expropriated by Israel and uh, they become associated with Israel without uh, sufficient warrant. And then finally, there's something that I call linguistic exoticism, which is the use of Arabic terms in English discourse about Palestine, uh, with the effect sometimes of sort of distancing or alienating uh, the, uh, the question of Palestine, Palestinians, 
uh, and so on. So let me try and give you an example or two of each of these phenomena uh, in order to try and clarify uh, what I have in mind here. Uh, so when it comes to linguistic manipulation, this is a process whereby certain terms with either positive or negative valence uh, are used in a misleading way. They're not always used consistently. They're applied to some instances and not others without warrant and so on. Uh, so peace process. Of course, Chomsky is maybe uh, the, the go-to uh, man to talk about language in Palestine. Uh, of course, Chomsky sometimes dis disavows. He sometimes says that uh, his work in linguistic doesn't really connect up with his work in politics. Uh, but in certain places, he has acknowledged that there is an overlap, and he has uh, tried to say certain things about the way in which language gets manipulated and misused. And one of the things that Chomsky proposes uh, somewhere is the idea that this term peace process in uh, media discourse, in, especially in the United States, in mainstream US discourse, is used in such a way that it's roughly synonymous with whatever policy the US happens to support uh, in the Middle East. So uh, Chomsky says, uh, this is from an excerpt from a speech uh, from 1990 in his inimitable way. You have to think of this as being part of a speech uh, not as something uh, that's written down. So he says, in its technical meaning, and by technical, he's being a little ironic here. He means sort of the official doctrine, the doctrinal convention. In its technical meaning, peace process refers to whatever the United States happens to be advocating at a particular moment. Whatever diplomatic initiatives the United States is advocating, that's the peace process. Notice it follows that it's a logical impossibility for the United States to be opposed to the peace process. That's a nice consequence. Mm -hmm. To prove that the United States is for peace, you don't have to do any laborious inquiry into the annoying facts, because it's true by definition. So by definition, by the way that it's been implicitly defined uh, within US uh, mainstream discourse. And I would try and add as a corollary to that, that this usage makes it difficult to express opposition to US policy, because again, by definition, that means you're an enemy of peace. Uh, you're anti-peace because you oppose U.S. policy. And U.S. policy, by definition, is the peace process. Uh, so I think that's, that's a nice example. Now, of course, the big one uh, that everyone discusses uh, is terrorism. But I think uh, a lot of t uh, the time, uh, there's some misleading claims made about the concept of terrorism. Sometimes people say, well, terrorism, it's kind of a vacuous concept. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. There isn't really much substance to this term. People apply it. Uh, any way they want. Well, there's a widely accepted definition, I think, uh, that does make sense and that uh, is, uh, there is a point to it. Uh, and that is something along the lines of the use of violence against civilians to achieve political ends. Now, if you define it this way and you, you use it consistently, then it would apply not just to uh, actions by groups, non-state groups, but it would apply to state actions as well. Yet, of course, it's almost never applied uh, to Israeli violence uh, in mainstream discourse. Uh, and meanwhile, Israel, I think, has largely succeeded in branding as terrorism any act, more or less, of Palestinian uh, or Lebanese uh, resistance for the past few decades. Now, um, there's hardly any mainstream uh, reference to Israeli violence as terrorists outside of certain uh, Palestinian uh, you know, media outlets or uh, Palestinian discourses. So in uh, the mainstream Anglophone discourse, there's very little uh, application of uh, 
that term, even though it would strictly apply to many Israeli military actions uh, as, as terrorists. So now, uh, I don't have some, uh, any uh, evidence, direct evidence that I could show uh, right now for this, but there might, be, uh, there might be a sense in which this term has been overextended in recent years. And uh, there are indications that some of this blanket application of uh, the term uh, to Palestinian uh, actions uh, has been uh, exposed in certain quarters as being uh, a real overextension. Uh, so uh, there are occasional signs that the term may have been overused and overextended. I see this in some of the recent uh, discourse. And in fact, this goes back, um, there's a really interesting example of this that uh, some of you who are old enough uh, might remember. Uh, during the uh, 1982 uh, Israeli invasion of Lebanon, uh, those of you who are familiar with the Doonesbury uh, cartoon, the Gary Trudeau uh, Doonesbury cartoon strip, uh, might remember this, uh, but uh, there was a really nice parody of this. Of course, it's kind of telling that this, this didn't appear in an op-ed in a mainstream uh, media outlet. This appeared in a cartoon strip, and certain things are tolerated in a cartoon strip that wouldn't be tolerated elsewhere. Uh, but here it is, um, if, uh, to illustrate the point that I, I'm not sure that you can read that, but I'll, I'll read it out to you. Um, this is, a, the scene is, in uh, the hills overlooking Beirut sometime in uh, August 1982. And there is an Israeli colonel in the middle. I think he's a, yeah, he's a colonel or a major. And he's being interviewed by the long-standing uh, Doonesbury character, uh, uh, Roland Headley, who at the time was supposedly an ABC News reporter, I think. And in the middle of the interview, a sergeant walks in and he starts talking to the Israeli officer. And the Israeli officer says, what is it now, sergeant? And he says, uh, we just got the final count of the terrorist evacuees, sir. And the uh, officer says, uh, does this include the terrorist wounded from the terrorist hospitals? And the sergeant says, yes, sir, along with the terrorist doctors and terrorist nurses. And Roland Headley <laughs> says, uh, wait a minute, what's all this terrorist business? Wasn't Begin once a terrorist too? And the officer says, Mr. Begin was not a terrorist, he was a freedom fighter. Uh, and Headley is chasing and he says, oh. And so the officer continues, how many terrorist relatives? And uh, the sergeant replies, 3,000 terrorist wives and 1,000 babies, 7, or 7,000 baby terrorists. Uh, so that's a maybe small indication that this kind of overextension of the term can be exposed and unmasked in certain quarters, albeit uh, you know, outside of maybe the mainstream discourse, the accepted uh, discourse. Um, what about this linguistic accommodation? Well, the second phenomenon that I have in mind is a related one. And it's a process whereby you've got a factual term that describes an aspect of Palestine, or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, and that factual term is challenged, or preempted perhaps, uh, by a term introduced by, in Israeli official discourse, or Zionist discourse, uh, that is highly charged and is, is very misleading in certain ways. And then often the media or other parties intervene with a supposedly neutral term that, is, that buys into neither side's account. Uh, and that's uh, supposedly a compromise. But of course, it's really a step away from the original factual term. And, and there are lots of examples of this. And, and 
I'm sure uh, some of you can come up with examples, um, whereby this factual term is applied to a certain phenomenon, an alternative loaded term is proposed instead, and then a compromise is reached, which is allegedly neutral and is nonpartisan. Um, but of course, the alleged compromise, I would argue, constitutes a real concession, a step away from objectivity, uh, rather than uh, allegedly, uh, a, a, a allegedly neutral term. Uh, so in fact, you've replaced, the net effect is to replace a factual term with a contentious one in the name of impartiality or objectivity. So uh, there are several examples. Um, take a term like the separation wall, which is a fairly factual description of the structure that Israel has built uh, in, uh, in closing parts of the West Bank and, and, and basically expropriating a great deal of land. Now, of course, the term in official Israeli discourse is security threats. And so the media steps in and says, you know what? We're not going to adopt either of these loaded terms. We're going to adopt this very neutral term, security barrier. <laughs> but of course, security barrier really knocks you back into uh, the sort of Zionist uh, uh, camp, right? Um, or you have the factual term occupied territories, which is the legal way to describe the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And of course, in Israeli discourse, it's usually administered territories or just the territories, often enough. And so the compromise is something like disputed territories. Uh, similarly with settlement, in fact some people argue that settlement uh, is uh, a, a little misleading because it should be something more like colony because it is a colonial endeavor. Um, and of course the Israelis like to describe these illegal outposts as neighborhoods. <coughs> and so often the media will step in and say, well let's just call it a community and that way we buy into neither side's account of things. Uh, now, of course, even the compromise term can be dispensed with in favor of the loaded Zionist alternative. Here's a nice little correction. You learn a lot from reading the corrections from the New York Times. Um, this is a correction to a picture caption. And I'm sure you realize this probably reflects dozens of phone calls and emails and letters and so on. Um, and it says, a picture caption on Thursday with the continuation of a news analysis article about a shift in the Obama administration's Middle East policy referred incorrectly to Ramad Shlomo, the name of a Jewish housing development that Israel says it's expanding despite objections by the United States and the Palestinian Authority. It is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem, not a settlement in the West Bank. So here, you know, this is in fact just the adoption of the Israeli uh, term without even the semblance of a kind of a supposedly compromised term. Um, uh, and as I said, of course, settlement itself has been regarded as misleading relative to colony, which is a term that's very rarely used uh, in mainstream discourse. Um, what about linguistic appropriation? Well, here's an interesting uh, phenomenon whereby uh, a contentious term uh, has been so appropriated by supporters of Israel uh, that it effectively becomes unavailable for use in other contexts. And I want to mention two types of appropriation uh, that I find. Um, so it seems to me in some cases, a common phrase becomes so often used in conjunction with Israel uh, that effect it's effectively appropriated without sufficient warrant. So it's repeated often enough that it becomes associated with Israel without really uh, any uh, justification. Um, 
And now, uh, in other cases, an expression is coined expressly for application to Israel and becomes so inextricably linked to, to Israel that it becomes difficult to apply elsewhere. So, um, and, and sometimes the expression is misleading or it's ambiguous in a way that's, that's advantageous to the uh, Israeli account of things. Uh, so take the term right to exist, this expression right to exist. Uh, now this expression, as I'm sure many of you know, is not a term in international law. It's not really a term even in political or moral philosophy. Uh, it's more or less a made up expression. And it's now applied almost exclusively to Israel. If you conduct searches of this on various databases, almost the only time that it's ever used is in conjunction with Israel. But now, right to exist, since it's not a legal term, since it's not, there is no, uh, excuse me, widely accepted <coughs> definition of this term, it conceals an important ambiguity because it might gain the right to establish the state of Israel in the first place, which is, of course, a very debatable uh, issue and about which uh, various arguments might be made, uh, or the right for the state of Israel to continue to have the same borders, the same discriminatory legal system, and so on, which is, again, a, another thing that uh, we might have a great deal of debate about. Or it could mean something more like, and this is, I think, what it conjures up in the minds of many people who hear this phrase, the right of the people of Israel to exist, to survive, the right of these people um, not to be killed, right? To exist, literally. Um, and, and of course, that no one, no one really uh, in their right mind is denying. And so the denial of Israel's right to exist somehow conjures in the minds of many people uh, something like a genocidal operation. You're denying the right of Israel to exist. Oh, well, doesn't that mean that you want to kill them all or something like that? Um, but now this phrase has been so appropriated by Israel that it becomes almost anomalous to apply it to other states or to other people. There's almost no mention in mainstream discourse of Palestine's right to exist or the Palestinians' right to exist. And when it applied to Israel, since it is a term without really any stable definition, it plays on this uh, very crucial ambiguity. Um, another one that I'm interested in is most moral army. Now, um, this is not quite as common, not nearly as common. Uh, it's more common, I think, in Israeli internal discourse. But um, various Israeli leaders refer to the Israeli army as the most moral army in the world. How can you accuse the Israeli army of conducting war crimes when it's the most moral army in the world? And this phrase, gets associated with Israel in such a way that it's applied without real regard to accuracy. No one really questions it because it's been so repeated uh, uh, when it, in conjunction with, with Israel. And it becomes even difficult to apply it to other cases. Um, it's almost like the appropriation of certain slogans by certain uh, advertising campaigns uh, in branding campaigns or something like that. You know, the familiar advertising campaigns that immediately are supposed to conjure up in your mind uh, the names of certain brands, the real thing, just do it, we try harder. Uh, but of course, even advertising slogans are regulated, and so, you know, calling an army the most moral army in the world is, is not a contradiction, but it's at best a little misleading. It's a little like referring uh, to uh, something as the healthiest cigarette, uh, or you know, the most nutritious junk food, or something like that. Um, now, that's, that's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the reason that this is important is because of the implicit associations that this might conjure up. If you repeat it often enough, then it becomes very difficult to accuse the Israeli army of having conducted war crimes because after all, isn't it the most moral army uh, in the world? Uh, a similar thing goes on with the use of the Israel defense forces. Now many armies in the world, many militaries in the world refer to themselves as defense forces. I found this out from Wikipedia, uh, funnily enough. Uh, but uh, the Israeli army, I would argue, is one of the few that is very regularly referred to in this way outside of Israeli official discourse. And so uh, you find references to, to the Israel Defense Forces or the Israeli Defense Forces all over the place. Uh, and I would say that the reason that this is so pernicious is certain, uh, certain concepts become harder to express. It becomes very hard to say something like the Israel Defense Forces have launched an offensive. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? Uh, when you say something like that. And so, um, uh, that, I think, is the importance of the way in which these terms operate. It, it closes off certain uh, ideas or it makes it harder to express certain thoughts. And uh, I think they, they operate very effectively in that way. And even when you say the IDF, it somehow implicitly carries that association, even if you don't spell out uh, the, uh, the full uh, name. Finally, the fourth thing that I wanted to talk about is um, what I'm calling linguistic exoticization. And this is the use of Arabic terms or phrases in English discourse. Uh, and I think it often, not always, uh, but it often has the effect of dis distancing or alienating a certain aspect of uh, the question of Palestine and uh, Palestinians generally. Uh, so, I mean, we often use neologisms. We often uh, import term from other languages uh, to uh, fill a certain semantic hole, to, to plug a certain lexical gap that we have. Uh, so if there isn't a ready translation for a term in another language, we often will use, we'll just transliterate instead <coughs> of translating. We'll often just import a term from another language. Uh, and you know, there are many, many examples, but here's an interesting one from the, um, from the the anthropological uh, literature, uh, the Kiruwina language of New Guinea contains the word mokita, which means truth everybody knows but nobody speaks. Uh, there isn't a single word in English for that. It's a convenient concept. And you might say, well, let's just borrow uh, that term. Uh, and of course, this occurs in Arabic very often, or, or Arabic with respect to English. So you have a term like asabiya, the Khaldun's favorite uh, concept which um, is very hard to translate. And sometimes people come up with translations for it, but other times people just import the Arabic term. Uh, interesting one from recent political discourse, which I think is pernicious in certain ways, is mumana, uh, which is also, I think, hard to translate. Uh, and sometimes you might want to just import it. And of course, there's the colloquial wasta and many other besides. And I'm sure people can think of many uh, other examples. But now, when there is an English equivalent, uh, the practice, I think, can have the effect of exoticizing a phenomenon or making it seem really alien. Uh, and in a Palestinian context especially, I think it often suggests that what they do is essentially different or fundamentally uh, other than what is done uh, among, say, English speakers. Uh, so take the term intifada, uh, which many people use and I use as well, 
But I think that some uses of the Arabic term intifada in English discourse uh, seem to have this effect. Um, as we all know, intifada is the noun from the verb intifada, which is verb form eight if you're a grammar buff, iftala, and it has an almost exact English equivalent, uprising, uh, to intifada, buffed, uh, means to shake off a yoke, it means to uh, kind of rise up uh, suddenly and to um, uh, object to whatever situation you find yourself in. Um, and so if there is this more or less exact English equivalent, why should we use in English the word intifada? Well, I would say that it sometimes has the effect of distancing the phenomenon, suggesting that it's very different from, say, uprisings in Western history, such as the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, for instance, to name just one example among many. Uh, now, I'm not saying all uses are like that. In some cases, when you use the term intifada in English, you're using it more or less as a proper noun, and you're referring in particular to the particular uprising, uh, say the first or second Palestinian uprising. But some other uses, it seems to me, are gratuitous, are ones where uh, the, the main effect is to somehow suggest that this is a kind of an alien phenomenon. Now, I don't have very much evidence for this right now and here, but it seems to me there's some indirect evidence for it. When you see certain kinds of, uh, I think, spurious etymological derivations of the term. So people say, well, you know, intifada, this is a very obscure Arabic concept. It refers to um, shaking off a piece of cloth or it's like what the camel does when it gets up very suddenly and shakes sand off its body. And I've actually uh, seen those kinds of spurious etymological derivations um, about what this really means and how this is essentially alien. And then one last example, um, those of you who have monitored uh, recent uh, events, especially in Gaza in the last several years, uh, might have noticed that this term hudna has uh, cropped up uh, in many Anglophone accounts of what's going on in Gaza and the uh, relationship between Hamas and other Palestinian groups uh, and, and their dealings with, with Israel. Uh, now, Hudna, as we all know, uh, means truce or perhaps ceasefire. And so you might say, well, why is this? Why, why are uh, English-speaking uh, reporters and English-speaking journalists using this term Hudna when they could just use the perfectly uh, fine English uh, term truce. And I would again suggest that uh, it might carry a suggestion that Palestinian groups can't really adhere to a truce or a ceasefire, even temporarily. Uh, and this is corroborated somewhat by some discussions which uh, Israeli uh, official spokespersons and others have said things in, to the media like, well, a hudna is not really a truce. It's really just a chance for them to rearm. It's a kind of very deceptive, very <laughs> nefarious thing that these Palestinians engage in. And so this old Islamic concept where they really stab you in the back and they're actually uh, doing something else. They're not really engaging in a truce. At the same time, I think it allows Israeli spokespersons to deny that they've reached a truce with Hamas. No, we haven't really reached a truce with Hamas. We've just reached a hudna which is quite different. So there is no question of any kind of a, uh, a real agreement uh, with the Palestinians. Uh, 
Um, so to try and sum up, I've tried to give examples of four different kinds of uh, linguistic interactions with the question of Palestine, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, one which I call linguistic manipulation, uh, another um, accommodation, a third linguistic appropriation, uh, and then finally uh, what I'm calling linguistic exoticism.